To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of the creation of God says this, I know your deeds that you are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. Because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have need of nothing, and you do not know that you are wretched and miserable and poor and blind and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined by fire so that you may become rich and white garments so that you may clothe yourself and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed and I salve to anoint your eyes so that you may see. Those whom I love I reprove and discipline, therefore be zealous and repent. Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and will dine with him and he with me. He who overcomes, I will grant to him to sit down with me on my throne, as I also overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. So, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that it's living and active. And I pray that this morning that your Holy Spirit would open our hearts and minds and that you would speak to each one of us in the way that only you can. I pray that you would give John wisdom to speak your heart and to hear your voice. And we love you and thank you that you would choose to speak to us in the way that you do. Amen. Amen. Thanks, friend. I'll start with uh, confessing my temptation to completely change the message um, from what the scripture actually says to what I want to say about lukewarmness being staying home on a snow day. Uh, make all of us in this room feel better and the, let's see how many will go, and you 10 people online guilty and full of shame. But that's not what pastors are supposed to do. So, thanks. 1882, Frederick Nietzsche. Anybody know what he famously said? God is what? Dead. He said, God is dead. God remains dead and we have killed him. How shall we comfort ourselves? The murderers of all murderers. At that time, in the rise of modernity in the late 1800s, early 1900s, there was a prediction that God would be completely removed from society. 141 years later, it seems as though that hasn't happened, but something perhaps more mundane, and I would say a little more dangerous, has. We didn't kill God. We made him a commodity. We turned God into an accessory that is worn when convenient, when the risk is low, when we want, kind of just like a, a piece of jewelry. If God doesn't fit the occasion, then we leave him in the closet. My, I'm going out on a little bit of a limb this morning with the church in Laodicea and, and what seems to be happening here in 2023. It seems though one of the great threats to life with God and witness in the world, and I would say even our church here in 2023, isn't the rise of the radical left or the alt-right, though there are challenges and struggles there. Um, it isn't secularization or unhinged religion. It's familiarity and apathy. I think one of the chief threats to the church, our church, the church in Prescott, I'm not speaking in global terms right now, 
but it's just familiarity and apathy. We've become used to being numb. We're comfortable with numbness. And again, I, I'm given a little bit of my uh, view from the cheap seats, so you get what you pay for here this morning. Part of the rise of the political polarization that we see in the world and, and specifically in the church, my theory is not that we have these deep convictions about these things, it's just that we want to feel something, anything. Jesus tells us that we need to be set on suffering and settled into slowness. Anthony talked about that last week, quoting Zach Eswine, one of my favorite quotes, that following Jesus requires doing small, mostly overlooked things over a long period of time with him. Jesus is clear about suffering. He's clear about slowness. And instead, we go, let's do something. Let's take control. Let's, let's make a difference. And we go, it's better to be angry than to feel blah. Disdain towards the other, whoever the other is for you, feels a little bit better for a moment than depression. So let's go down that rabbit hole. And then it doesn't inevitably feel that longing that all of our hearts have for significance and meaning and all of that. And so we return back to this apathy. We, we return to this numbness that we have in many cases due to the abundance of our lives. We have everything. We need nothing. If our lives for most people in modern America today and in Prescott in particular, how you doing? The, it's one word. It's terrible. It's, 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 the word is fine. Just fine. We have food in our pantries. We have clothes on our back. Life sure has its difficulties, but it's just fine. We're just kind of plowing through. And as we look at these seven churches, it would seem Laodicea would or could be one of the closest comparisons to the church today, in my personal opinion. There's overlapping and corollaries with every single one. The way Jesus presents himself here to them is meant to raise them out of a ditch of dullness. We've seen Jesus so far in these accounts. He continues to reveal himself to every church and who he is and how he rolls and what he's like. We've seen Jesus so far as having the seven stars. He walks among the lampstands. He is the first and the last. He is the one who died and came to life. Jesus is the one who has a sharp two-edged sword. He has eyes like a flame of fire. Feet is burnished bronze. He has the seven spirits. He's the holy one. He's the true one. He has the key of David. He opens things that no one can shut. And here, if you're familiar with the Old Testament, specifically the prophet Isaiah, there's a lot of echoes going on as he calls himself the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the beginning of God's creation. This is Jesus. First, the amen. It's one of the classic kid questions. If you have children and you have prayed with them, inevitably they go, why do we say amen at the end of our prayers? And you go, I don't know. Why do we? And then you Google, why do we say amen at the end of our prayers? Amen simply means yes. I affirm this. I agree with this. It's affirmation, agreement, kind of a communal yes to 
a prayer. And Jesus is presented, and I'm not, this phrase is not original to me, but it's just stuck in my head. Jesus is presented as the yes of God. I don't even know what that means. I just really like the sound of it. Jesus is the yes of God. In Paul's second letter to the crazy Corinthian church, he's talking about how their plans had to change. They weren't going to be able to come as they had hoped for. And he says this about Jesus that has a connection. 2 Corinthians 1, verse 20 through 22. He says, For all the promises of God find their yes, their amen, in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. And it is God who establishes us with you in Christ and has anointed us and who has also put his seal on us and given us his spirit in our hearts is a guarantee. So we see Jesus is the one in whom all of God's promises find their, their culmination, their fulfillment, their yes. This is who he is. That all God wants to give and affirm is found in Jesus. As he said to his disciples, Jesus said, if you, if you want to see the Father, or if you've seen me, Jesus says, you've seen the Father. If you're ever curious of what God is like, look at Christ. And this Christ is faithful and true. This word faithful, one of the greatest bestest words in all of the Bible that, again, is incredibly familiar and can become cliche. Oh, brother, Jesus is faithful. God's faithful. And he's going, okay, in one ear, out the other. But we have to pause and go, what does it mean, Jesus being faithful? I put in three words. He is there. He's there. He's dependable. He's knowable. He's unchanging. And the good thing that comes along with that faithfulness is that he's true. It'd be one thing for someone to always be around but then kind of be like wrong or misguided. That's not Jesus. He's faithful and he's true. He's without error. This, Jesus is non-hypocritical. He's always the same. Yesterday, today, and forever. Isn't that refreshing? I am a hypocrite. This world is full of hypocrites. We don't always know if what we see is what we're going to get with people. And that's not the case with Christ. He's the faithful and true witness. He's the one who testifies of God accurately. And so again, if you want to know God, see Jesus. Not only that, it's, you know, uh, what was the guy? Billy, the OxyClean guy. Billy whatever, but wait, there's more. He's the beginning of God's creation. Here, John the Revelator is echoing Genesis and John chapter 1. And there's themes of Colossians chapter 1 where we see Jesus as the one that is uh, for whom and by whom and through whom all things were created. And that all of creation is held together in the word or through the word of his power. And if we are in Christ, if we have decided to follow after Jesus, if we have surrendered our life to God in faith and trusted him as the faithful and true witness, then it says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that we, if anybody is in Christ, 
he or she is a new creation. Behold, the old has passed away and all things are new. This is who Jesus is. Every church needs a consistent gaze at him to get these glimpses of who he is before we and they hear his evaluation. And he's really good to give that. He, he's not brash. He's not a bully. He doesn't come in kicking the door and saying, uh, what's going on here? He introduces himself, who he is, how he rolls. And from that sweetness and severity, from his consistency, hopefully there's conviction that can come as he sees through all our charades. And what so much of Revelation and the whole Bible is doing is giving God's people a glimpse of who God is so they might rightly reflect him in the world. You can go all the way back to Genesis 1 and 2 where it says that humanity is made in the image of God, which means we were created to reflect God to the world, to one another. But because of the fall, that, that mirror is broken. It's shattered. We do not rightly, consistently, faithfully, truly reflect God. But in Christ, he continues to reveal himself. He continues to heal that brokenness so that God's people might more accurately and truly and faithfully reflect him to the world. God desires that his people persevere in their witness. And that witness isn't that the church is you know, needing to be knocking on doors all the time, occupying street corners, or simply holding good theology in our heads, but living in a way that invites others to see and experience God. And it seems this church in Laodicea had lost it. Their works, Jesus says, wishes something different. To understand the whole concept of lukewarm and the vivid imagery Jesus gives, we need to step back and understand what this city was all about. Out of these seven churches, Laodicea was the wealthiest of them all. And I have a handful of long quotes throughout this message uh, because I feel like Eugene Peterson and a few others say things better than I could regurgitate them to you. Eugene Peterson, he says this. Its wealth, this is Laodicea's, uh, was based on three things. First, it was a banking center. The banking arrangements for that part of the world were made there. And coins were minted there. It was a combination of Wall Street and Fort Knox. Second, it was also a garment center. The hills around Laodicea were famous for a certain breed of black-wooled sheep. From this wool, garments and carpeting were manufactured in Laodicea. Fashions were created there. In this mixture of a Paris salon in New York's Fifth Avenue. Third, it was a medical center. There was a medical school there which had a worldwide reputation for two locally produced medicines. One was an ointment of nard, which was used to cure sore ears, but above all, it was famous for a certain eye powder. It was expo exported in tablet form, and the tablets were ground down and applied to the eyes as a cure for op... op I practiced this one and listened to it, too. That word. It was John Hopkins Hospital and Mayo Clinic to the ancient world. Money, fashion, medicine, these three successes brought the Laodiceans affluence and prosperity. They were so completely successful in these material blessings 
that they quite forgot about any other aspects of the world or existence. They were anesthetized by their affluence and they lost all sense of God. They were lukewarm. Lukewarmness is the special fault of the successful. Those that have achieved or inherited are particularly prone to it. It is a basic threat to our church. This is him speaking in the 70s in the suburbs of Baltimore and our Christian faith in these times. And now we're all wishing we stayed home today. Do you see this in our time and in our culture? Even if not especially in Prescott? You may not feel this personally. I know that not all of us are upper middle class in this room. But usually if we don't feel the privilege and prosperity and affluence that we are experiencing in life today, even with all of its difficulties, even with all of its uh, trappings and, and toughness that we do experience, if we don't feel that, it's usually because we have a distorted comparison to somebody that's further along in life. And today, I'm, I'm not attempting to induce guilt over privilege or prosperity in life. I, I'm not interested in doing that. You didn't necessarily choose, you didn't necessarily, you didn't choose who your parents or your grandparents were. There's an old cliched saying that uh, if you want to do well in life, choose your grandparents well, wisely. Like, well, so much of our lives is outside of our control. And, and as Anthony said last week, God is an anti-wealth. The Bible gives us major categories between rich and poor. There's righteous rich. There's unrighteous rich. There's righteous poor. Jesus. Unrighteous poor. Laziness. Like the, the Bible gives these bigger categories, and it isn't just simply, oh, you have money, you're a bad person. No. How'd you get the money? What are you doing with the money? The Bible's much more nuanced and personal when it comes to these things. But what the Bible does do again and again and again is warn around wealth, and the warnings around wealth are plenty because of the lethargy and the lies of self-sufficiency that we can believe and that can be produced in this. I'm so guilty every single vacation I ever go on. I think, well, if I don't have something, I have a credit card. Or if something goes wrong, it's gonna be fine. Why? Because there's money and there's credit and there's banks and it's like, it's all gonna be fine. Because at least by God's grace so far, it always has been. Like that is wild. And, and in the course of human history, that is a unique thing that we all are experiencing today. It's not always been that way. And also I'm short-sighted in that because there's a whole lot of things that Visa doesn't cover. I get it. <laughs> but what can happen with affluence and what can happen with success is it leads to a life of waning witness in a withering welcome. The gaze towards God and his world is bent inward. And it's to this that Jesus says to this church, you're, you're lukewarm, and I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. An image that is startling 
And commentators are all over the map with what this lukewarmness means. One theorizes that Hierapolis, which is an ancient city nearby, it was known for their cold, refreshing waters. Colossae was known for their hot springs that had medicinal qualities. And Laodicea had aqueducts and the water was tepid and kind of a neat, like the, the acidity was off. And, and so he's talking about the water source there. I don't know. Um, I started thinking my morning coffee, I would like that either cold or hot. When it kind of gets in that, you get busy doing other things and it's that in between. Yeah, that's worthy of spitting out of your mouth. Also not what Jesus is talking about here. Maybe the closest I found, biblical scholar Peter Lightheart, he says this. What does Jesus mean by rejecting the lukewarm Laodiceans and wishing for hot or cold? Coaster suggests that the imagery has to do with hospitality. Chilled and warm wine were both popular drinks. When a guest arrived, his host might offer him wine chilled with snow or wine mixed with warm water. To be offered lukewarm wine was an insult to the guest and a mark against the host. In short, and he quotes, the Laodiceans are unlike the hot or cold drink that a banqueter might desire. They are tepid, objectionable, and something to be vomited out of the mouth. That fits with the overall imagery of the message to Laodicea, which ends with an explicit reference to a banquet. The Laodiceans have not welcomed Jesus as an honored guest. Even when they don't leave him outside the door knocking to get in, they haven't been good hosts. It seems as though they, and often we, attempt an impossible third way. Where Jesus says, really, in following me, you're either in or you're out. You're either on this narrow road that leads to life, or you're in this wide road that leads to destruction, and many of us go, well, how about that third way? Kind of sort of in and out. I, I believe good things, and I try to practice mostly good things, and kind of live more in a karma mindset. I hope the good's going to outweigh the bad on Judgment Day. But Jesus says that's not telling the truth about ourselves. You either utilize God as a commodity and convenience, or you follow him with wholehearted surrender. Lukewarm isn't great in any relationship. As my friend Anthony said this week, as I'm going, what does lukewarm mean? His theory is it's just simply not telling the truth about who or where you are. That was my interpretation of your words. There was a lot more of them. There usually are. <laughs> but when somebody is not telling the truth, about who they are or where they are. It's not good for anybody in any relationship. And for the love of God, tell the truth. Follow a path. But again, drift has a way of settling in. Many can go from being this cold away from God, experiencing salvation and joy in Jesus and having this hot, saved reality and then kind of settle in this murky middle, this lost, wandering, often more aware and engaged with the outside world than God himself. I'm guilty of that. But at the same time, I don't think this passage is like most youth pastors at camp that is saying that you have to have this only emotive, zealous experience of God. 
that hot or cold has to do with your inner temperament and disposition. Because, again, I, I think most of life is lived at a baseline. But what he's getting at is where our hearts and our minds and our lives, what they are built on and around. And in a beautifully specific way, Jesus highlights this and invites them to trust in him with, with everything. And we can realize and thank God for the fact that he isn't talking about an emotional barometer here. He's not simply talking about our feelings towards God. And so some of you that are a little more emotionally dull, you can go, Ooh, thank God. He's not simply getting after feelings here. He's asking his people to come to him and live their lives under a completely different metric than that which the world measures. He's asking us to live under his reign and rule in obedience in the midst of the world. Rather than counting our, our goodness, our satisfaction around wealth and health and appearance from and in the world, we're welcoming and we're depending on him for everything. It's, it's the Sermon on the Mount lived out in everyday life that we would be those that seek first God's kingdom and his righteousness and everything else would be added to us. What could this look like? So what, what might this look like for them, for, for us, people who have success, who have abundance, who have health? Well, where there's success, we have to look at it honestly and say, am I utilizing the success God has granted me to sow into people in God's kingdom? Am I being generous towards God and people? Or do I have a hoarding, selfish mentality? Or the bigger barns of God's given me more, so I'm just going to get more and only more for me. And the Bible warns so much about this, and we would be wise to take heed to that. Where there's success, what are you sowing into in life? Where there's abundance. So these people had the garments and the black-wooled sheep sweaters or whatever it might have been. And where there's abundance, it isn't simply to cover ourselves, but invite others to share in and celebrate the good gifts of God. God provides for his people so they might provide hospitality in the midst of the world. Again, witness has often been framed over the last, I don't know, 20, 30 years is what you need to tell somebody to evangelize, to convince them. And I think more often scripture talks about inviting people through our front doors and sharing a meal with them of warming and welcoming. And that's not that you have to be, you know, Martha Stewart or Rachel Ray or have this grand gift of hospitality, but it's simply having somebody over either within the church or from the outside in for a meal to get to know them, to love them, to provide for them. Where there's abundance, that's to be used for hospitality. Where there's health, it is in order that we might help those who aren't necessarily able to the same degree that we would be. And in this... You see the church at its best when it's living into this. And I'm grateful that even in the Prescott area, you have the Community Pregnancy Center, 
Christians doing this. You have Agape House and the Gospel Rescue Mission, Christians doing this. CCJ, their roots are in these kinds of ideas and frameworks of following Jesus. The church at its best and God's people at their best live into this. And I think even within our church, what we're attempting is as we receive money, yes, there's the saving for what God would have for the future, but at the same time, we're attempting to be generous where we are in the process. We're not going, well, once we have a building and once we're established, then we can support this, that, and the other thing. And it, it doesn't change when you, for those of you that have experienced success or experienced it in others, how you live when you're poor is how you're going to live when you're rich. Like, because the heart and mentality is always the same. It, it rarely changes. And so, Jesus invites us in these places to live a life of obedient witness in the midst of the world. And what can often happen in this text, when you, when you talk about lukewarmness, I, I don't know that any of us go. And maybe you're on cloud nine and following Jesus and you're like, hot for the Lord, great, congratulations. I think most of us are like, I'm here. And so what can happen is that we settle into some guilt and shame, and the pastor just gave you three extra things you have to do this week, and why you stink at life, and, and I don't think that's what Jesus is doing. Reading this account, Christ one is not like me, which is really good news, or most pastors, because you can see how he's simply honest and realistic and invitational. He says, here's where you are, Here's who you are. Here's what's going on. There's a better way. Come and follow me. Like this passage is often taught with shame, and there is this like vivid imagery that Jesus says, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth, which is like, whoa. But I think he gives the imagery to get our attention, and then you have to see what he does with that. At least with me, I read it and I go, holy smokes, that's crazy. I'm listening. And then what does he do? He says, you say, I'm rich, I have prospered, I need nothing. He's using their words so they can hear it in their own head. Not realizing you're wretched, pitiable, poor, blind, and naked. And then this, I counsel you. He, he's not pointing a finger. He's, he's holding out a hand. He said, I counsel you to come to him. Buy from him gold refined by the fire. You guys remember the old song, Don't Let My Love Grow Cold? I'm calling out, light the fire again. Such a strange song, but it comes from here. I remember as a kid singing, I'm here to buy gold refined in the fire, naked and poor, wretched and blind. I come, clothe me in white so I won't be ashamed. Lord, light the fire again. Had a little jazzy vibe with this laryngitis, huh? Oh, man. <laughs> Jesus, Jesus invites them to follow, to receive, and to see him. He invites them to repent. 
There's no, you know better, or how dare you, or are you serious? He gives this imagery for their attention and, and a warm welcome to let him in. And this love of Jesus can and does lead to life. What does he say yet again to the five churches I got to preach on? Repent. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline, so be zealous and repent. Because he loves us, he corrects us, he disciplines us. And so repent. We've talked a lot about repentance. Last week I got to listen to Tim Keller's new book on forgiveness. And I want to share with you his framework for repentance. He says there's four things to avoid, two things to do, one thing to receive. First, he gives four things to avoid. Tim Keller calls them counterfeits of repentance. There's blame shifting, whitewashing, self-pity, and self-flagellation. Blame shifting is this. I'm sorry, but you know it really wasn't my fault. He says, real repentance takes full responsibility for your sin. Whitewashing, it's not that bad. Nothing really happened. Often whitewashing is a comparison. It's not like whoever is worse than you. Self-pity. Often when we are stuck in our sin or in a place of compromise, we don't look towards the Savior and others. We just go inward. Keller says false repentance is sorrow over the consequences of the sin. In the trouble it has caused you, fear-based repentance makes us hate ourselves. Joy-based repentance makes us hate the sin. So you find yourself hating yourself or the sin. Then self-flagellation, kind of turning to a works-based outcome where you do better, try harder, make big promises, and kind of beat yourself up, but, you know, you got this. Now, where do you, where do you find yourself? It's kind of church bingo. If you get all four, congratulations. There's, there's a savior. If you ask Karen, I think she'd say, I'm the first two. I'm a blame shifter and a whitewasher, personally. That's not true repentance. That's what we're used to. So if those are the four things we are to avoid, what are the two things we are to do? Simply we confess sin and we forsake it. Repentance has this two-part realization of confessing and verbalizing that we have sinned against God and others, and then we forsake it. Here's an extended quote from him. In Proverbs 28, 13, we read, Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper, but he who confesses and forsakes them will obtain mercy. First, we must confess. A word that is helpfully contrasted in the proverb with the word, word conceal. To confess is to make a full, clean admission of what you have done wrong, without qualification or excuse, without minimizing or relativizing. Tim Keller's seen my life. It is to take full responsibility. The Hebrew word yada, translated here as confess, always has the sense of praising and thanking God. So confessing a sin is not merely telling the truth, nor does an abstract, I deserve punishment of some kind. Rather, it is admitting that you have been failing to love and honor God. And at this moment, you begin to glorify him by admitting how you have wronged him and others. He continues. However, Proverbs 28, 13 moves on and said, it's not enough to confess 
or admit a sin, you must also forsake it. To forsake is to make a full renunciation of the sinful behavior, both in your heart attitude and in practical action. When John the Baptist led people to the brink of repentance, they asked, what then shall we do? And he answered, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. That's in Luke 3.8. And by that, he meant practical action that reversed their wrong behavior. And so we avoid counterfeit repentance by confessing and forsaking sin. And the one thing that Keller says we are to receive is grace, which leads to rejoicing. Again, he summarizes. Tim Keller, in summary, repentance begins when blame-shifting, whitewashing, self-pity, and self-righteous despair end. It begins when confession, renunciation, and the acceptance of free grace takes place. The clouds of guilt and shame can lift, and we can sing. Finally, there is one thing to receive. After repenting, one must come rejoicing, rejoicing in the free mercy of God. Repentance without rejoicing leads to despair. And so the invitation of Jesus to the church of Laodicea, and I believe to Union Church today, is that we can welcome him now in our lives and in our church, where we are, as we are. And in this imagery, Jesus is patient and kind. It says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. That echoes the Exodus account. It's the Lord, the Lord, merciful and gracious. He is slow to anger. He's abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. This is God. George MacDonald, the, I believe, English poet. Yeah, you like George MacDonald, right, Marianne? There's no shame. Nor, he says, will God force any door to enter in. He may send a tempest about the house. The wind of his admonishment may burst doors and windows. Yea, shake the house to its foundations. But not then, not so will he enter. The door must be opened by the willing hand. Ere the foot of love will cross the threshold. He watches to see the door move from within. Every tempest is but an assault in the siege of love. The terror of God is but the other side of his love. It is love outside the house that would be inside. Love that knows the house is no house, only a place until it enter home, but a tent until the eternal dwell there. Which leads to this beautiful image of sitting on the throne with him. To the one who conquers, I will grant him to sit with me on my throne, as I also conquered and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. And following after Jesus and inviting Jesus into the home of our lives, it leads to belonging and being seated with him forever that we get to experience the joy of justification in all eternity. I, I didn't do a deep dive on who was allowed to sit on ancient thrones, so I'm just going off my Prescott High School education here. But I'm guessing you had to be pretty important. 
not just anybody could go sit on the throne of any king. And Jesus is saying here, no, you get to be with me. You get to sit in my place. What is true of him will be true of us for, <laughs> to quote Sandlight, forever. So the good news is that God isn't dead, nor is he comfortable being a commodity. The one who created all things has come into creation, has accomplished salvation through the cross and resurrection. He is faithful. He is in the midst of his church today. He is speaking and will one day return. And until then, he is calling us together to wrap all of our lives around him, to live under his rule and his reign, to follow his will and his way, that we would be a hospitable, open, welcoming people in the midst of the world, pointing all to the truth that is in Jesus. And so may we be known as a dependent and repentant and welcoming people, safe in Jesus's forever love. Let's pray. So Father, we thank you that you have gifted us your word in Jesus, that you have given us these words that show how you relate to your people in love. That when we're honest, there's aspects and areas of our heart and lives that have become lukewarm. And so we ask that you would lead us in the way of repentance. That we would drop our prideful self-sufficiency. We would leave our self-righteousness. That God, ultimately, we would see you, Jesus, in and among everything. And we would ask the difficult questions of what it looks to faithfully follow you today. We thank you that you are the faithful and true witness that in seeing you, we see God. And in seeing God, we see love that came, that suffered, that died, that rose and invites us to life today. And so where we are, how we are, God, we ask that you would continue shaping us with this good news. In the name of Christ we pray, amen.